Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to pick up our study. We took a little time off for Christmas and New Year's, and now we're back in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8, especially verses 4 through 8 this morning. God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word says to us, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his holy spirit to you. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, we're going to talk about sex this morning, and uh, I know that that got your attention. Everybody looked up when I said that, and, uh, and that's all the introduction I need. But I want to share three things with you this morning, three points that we, I want to draw from the passage before us so that the Lord might equip us to be his people uh, first of all, we want to look at what God wills and then what God specifies in this passage and then what God disallows. Well, first, we pick up where we left off a few weeks ago with what God wills. Uh, when we last studied 1 Thessalonians, we looked especially at those first three verses and we thought about what is the will of God for our lives. Well, it tells us here rather plainly in verse 3. Uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that word sanctification is obviously a, a big theological word. What does it mean? Um, we said uh, a few weeks ago that that word sanctification comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. And in fact, in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, sanctification and holiness are the same exact Greek word. So sanctification is the process of becoming holy. But what does the word holy mean? Well, without boring you with all the language study, the word holy means to set apart or to be devoted to God. We have many examples in Scripture. Uh, uh, we, we look through, especially in the Old Testament, we look at uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple. They were holy. We, we think about the, the priests and their attire. They had a special attire that they wore, and it was described as holy. We think of all the uh, instruments and the vessels inside the temple and tabernacle, and they were holy. Uh, we think of the Sabbath day. It's described as holy. Uh, there's many other things that we can list off. The, the incense, the anointing oil, all of these things are described as holy which means that they were set apart for a special use. They were devoted to God and his worship. 
You didn't use those utensils or the priest's garments or the tabernacle or the temple in any other context but in the service of God, completely devoted to the Lord and his worship. All of these things are described as holy, and they should not be made impure by using them for some mundane, secular purpose. You know, it was a kind of a controversy in the Old Testament when David shows up uh, and he takes the bread of the presence and he gives it to his men. And, and there was, uh, you know, some controversy there because that was bread that was there and used only for worship. And it was used for some other use at that point. So when we think about what it means to be holy, what we, we're talking about is to be devoted to God. Christians are described as holy. And what that means is that we are to be devoted to God. We are to be his instruments. We are to be used by him. We are to be his. We belong to him. And we ought not devote ourselves to anything else other than to him. So Paul is concerned about holiness here. If you look at verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So Paul is concerned here in how we walk, how we live, how we please God. Because God desires for his people to be holy, since this is his will for us, according to verse 3. We must be concerned about how we live our lives uh, are we living in a way that is pleasing to God? Does our lives reflect that we are devoted to him, that we belong to him, and do we desire to please him in every way? That's the concern that Paul has here. I've given you a quote in the outline uh, from Sinclair Ferguson. You've seen it before, but it's such a wonderful quote and reminder to us of the importance of sanctification. He says, if sanctification is not my priority, then it should not surprise me if I find my Christian life to be dogged with frustration. For in this case, I am seeking, consciously or not, to withstand the eternal purposes of God. I am missing out on the central privileges of the Christian life, namely glorifying and enjoying Him. So we need to settle the issue of our priorities. If God has committed Himself to changing our lives, to sanctifying us, then wisdom not to mention amazed gratitude, dictates that we should be committed to that too. Otherwise, God's will and my will are in competition with each other. God wants to make us holy. Now why? Why does God want to make us holy? What's his motivation in all of this? Well, he wants to have a relationship with us. That's what this is all about. He's not telling us to be holy just for the sake of to be holy. He's not giving us uh, guidelines for life and, and commandments and rules uh, arbitrarily. He has our best interest at heart. He, he wants to know us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And he's holy, so in order to have a relationship with him, we must be holy as well. Now, God didn't simply create the world and leave us to our own devices. No, he, he seeks us out. That's what we celebrated Christmas here a few weeks ago. Why? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because God became a man and dwelt among us. He came looking for us. He wanted to save us, or he came into this earth to save us from the guilt and bondage we have to sin. Why did he do that? Well, so he can be our God and we can be his people. So we can have a relationship with him, so we can know him. He wants it enough 
He wants to know us enough that he is willing, that he was willing, to give his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life where? With him. Eternally with him forever in a love relationship. So as we enter 2019 uh, and we think about what God wills, he wills our sanctification, our holiness, our devotion to him, I, I, I want us all to be committed to holiness, to be set apart for him, to set ourselves apart for him, to devote ourselves to the Lord. And look at verse 7, what it says there. It says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He, he wants us to be holy, completely devoted to him. So that's what God wills. Secondly, I want you to notice what God specifies here. He, he tells us that the will of God is our sanctification. Then he gets very specific. This is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. So he focuses in on the area of sex. The word for sexual immorality here is a broad term. Uh, and, and what is condemning here is two people sexually acting as if they are married when they are not married. Now, that's a, it's a broad term. This is the word porneia in Greek, which we get the word pornography from and other uh, iterations of that word. But uh, there's more to it than just that, uh, what he's talking about here. He includes adultery, for example, in his words here in verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, look at verse 6. Uh, he makes it clear that he's talking about adultery. No one, he's, he's worried that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So Paul has in mind wronging a brother by having sex with his wife. So adultery is condemned here. But he goes even further than that when he mentions, verse in verse 5, that... It, we should not be in the, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the passion of lust broadens it out even more to include anything outside of the boundaries of Scripture, any sexual activity outside the boundaries of Scripture, which clearly condemns any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. This would include... Uh, amongst other things, I'm going to put an etc. on the end of my list, but adultery and fornication, as we mentioned, homosexuality, pornography, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, etc. The Bible is very specific about these things, all of these things, and, and speaks clearly about uh, condemning these, these activities. Well, I don't want to go into detail about all that, but I do want to ask the question, why? Why, why does, when, God, uh, when Paul is talking about sanctification and our holiness, he immediately turns his attention to sexual immorality? Why that particular sin? Why didn't he go after drunkenness or, or pride or greed? Why sexual immorality? Well, two reasons. First of all, it was prevalent in the day, just as it is today. According to F.F. F. Bruce, who was a great New Testament scholar, uh, wrote a commentary on this, on this passage. He said, in his studies of, of the Greco-Roman world, he said, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. 
The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. There was no body of public opinion to discourage sexual immorality in those days. Although someone who indulged in it to excess might be satirized on the same level as a notorious glutton or drunkard. So this sin was very prevalent and was socially acceptable, much like it is in our day. You know, we, we live in a time, we live in a culture that is highly sexualized. You know, I, I was watching a, a, a cooking show. You know, you, you think you're immune in a cooking show. Uh, just watching some guy fix a salad, and he describes the salad as a sexy salad. I don't know how a salad could be sexy, but that's how he described it. And, and I don't think he meant that the, the salad has any kind of sexual content or uh, anything like that, but it, it was the language that he chose to use. He knew if he wanted you to desire this salad, he could describe it in that way. And that would be appealing to us because that's how we think about things and talk about things. Look at anything that is advertised on television. It's usually advertised with some acknowledgement, whether it is uh, open or underneath uh, implications. There's some, something about sex there, selling it using sex. We are a highly sexualized culture, just like it was in Paul's day. And of course, we're a much more permissive culture. We see that trend going on in our culture where, you know, a few generations ago, a lot of things that go on openly and freely today were, were condemned and were hidden if they were activities that you were involved in. So it was a prevalent sin, so Paul wants to address it, of course. And those Thessalonians would have, who were Gentiles uh, would have come out of that culture and now they have a new sexual ethic they're living by. And Paul's encouraging them. You can't go on living the same way, Paul's telling them. You can't go on living like the world around you now that you belong to the Lord. You've got to put those things away and live with honor and holiness. Well, there's a second reason that this is singled out as the one sin that he needs to address when he talks about being holy. And that is that, that sexual immorality is indicative of idolatry. Now follow me here. Uh, sexual immorality and idolatry go hand in hand. Anytime you read about uh, sexual or, or uh, idolatry in Scripture, usually alongside of it, it's talking about sexual immorality. Notice verse 5 not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Sexual immorality is an indicator both individually and culturally that people do not know God. Think about Romans 1 and what it says there. Paul explains that every human being, just by virtue of being a human being, you have an innate knowledge of God. Even though people say maybe they think they're atheists, they, they claim to be atheists, they don't believe in God, 
but they're just suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. We all have this stamped uh, upon us that there, is, that there is a God in the universe, even above the universe. But Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what happens is when people think about God, you immediately have to think that that God has a claim on my life as my creator. And we don't want that. We want to do what we want to do, especially in the area of morality. And so what we do is, as I've given you this quote here from, from Dr. Douglas Kelly, he says, they lower God and then deny God all the better to replace him with new gods who will not rebuke them for morally collapsing before the onslaught of their own lusts. And we have to ask ourselves, have are we idolaters? Have we created a God in the image that we want? Uh, when people, as Dr. Kelly says, lower God, they make God more like a man, uh, more, more tolerant, less holy. And they say, well, God, you know, God doesn't care what I do uh, in the privacy of my own home. Uh, God doesn't care, you know, these, these things that uh, I'm engaged in. God doesn't see or God uh, forgives me or, or God overlooks these things. We've lowered God and then pretty soon the next step is to deny God and then we replace God so that we can have justification to indulge in the lusts of our hearts. So idolatry and and sexual immorality often go hand in hand. And you see this. When you see, uh, I've seen a, a, numer a number of, of people who were conservative, would be evangelical, Bible-believing Christians who have moved to a more liberal view of scriptures and every single time it's because of sexual immorality. They want to justify some sort of sexual behavior, whether it's their own adultery, homosexuality, or whatever. They have to recreate God, they have to deny what Scripture says, and they have to change the truth a bit in order to, to, to conform to their desires. E. Michael Johnson, this is E. Michael Jones, this quote is so good. There are ultimately only two alternatives in the intellectual life, Either one conforms desire to the truth or one conforms truth to desire. God calls us to conform our desires to the truth, his word, his commands. And our desires have to be denied if they are in opposition to his truth. But what you see happening a lot in our day is people... Uh, have their desires and they want to justify their desires and so they change the truth, they tweak the truth 
And of course, when you tweak the truth, you really have no truth anymore, do you? You believed a lie. And God gives us over to that. If we push him away, if we don't want to hear it, then he says, okay, you'll get what you want and it will be destructive in your life. And that brings us to the third thing, what God disallows. I want to be careful here. When I say disallow, I don't want to give you the image that God is an ogre. You can't do that. I don't want to give you the image that God is a cosmic killjoy. No, I want, I want you to see God's great love in all of this. When I say God disallows, God is saving us from ourselves. God desires to know us and, and bring us into the right relationship with himself because that's what we were created for. First of all, he disallows law-breaking. tells us there in verse 6 that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And that's an ominous word, avenger. You know, of course, we have movies with the avengers in it and they're superheroes and, and they go out uh, knocking bad guys on the head. And we can think of God that way as somebody who, who uh, sees the, the sin out there and he's going to knock you on the head because uh, you're doing the wrong thing. But that word uh, avenger, of course, it, that's uh, the right uh, translation. I'm not disputing the translation. But it, it comes from a word that, that means to, deci to decide a legal process. An avenger is someone who upholds the law in the face of evil. And that's what God's doing here. He's, he's caring about us so much that he doesn't want, us to, leave, to, he doesn't want to leave us on the wrong side of, of his law. He's looking out for us. He's saying, if you go down this path, if you continue on, like, like the Gentiles who don't know God, you're going to destroy your lives. You're going to destroy others' lives. So he's looking out for us. Think of a swimmer. You know, I, I've never been able to swim very well. And uh, I remember when I was a, a kid, uh, we, we had a local swim club in, in my small town, and, and some of my friends were on the swim team. And, and so in the summer, we were always swimming at the, at the pool. And, and so they had an open meet one time, and, and I said, well, I'll swim in the open meet. And, uh, boy, that was hard. I was so out of shape and... And I didn't know what I was doing. I knew some of the strokes kind of halfway, but I'm sure I violated all the rules. I didn't really flourish as a swimmer. But could you imagine? Of course, you know, they set up the lanes. They have the little floating ropes that you're supposed to stay within. But could you imagine having a, a swim meet or a race where everybody just decided to swim in any direction they wanted to? They didn't want to follow all these rules and have to stay in the lane. Well, what would happen? It would be absolute chaos. It would be a debacle. No one would be able to, to flourish as a swimmer because you'd be running into each other and impeding each other's progress. Well, God has given us rules for life. He's given us lanes in which to, to live our lives. And when we stay in those lanes, we flourish. If you're, not, uh, if you're swimming in your lane, you can swim as fast as you can swim. For me, it wasn't very fast. But for others, like Michael Phelps, they can blaze back and forth in the pool over and over and over again because they're operating within the rules. And that's what God is wanting here. 
He's giving us direction for life so that we will not live in chaos and destruction. Look at the world. Look at the culture in which we live, this highly sexualized culture. Are people any happier? It's, a, it's miserable. Families are being destroyed. Life is devolving into chaos because people are not following God's law. And so when it says he's an avenger, it's not that he's just going to knock you on the head. He's trying to get you in the right direction. It's gracious what he's doing here. And then secondly, God disallows rejection. Rejection of himself. That's what I mean here. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now that word disregard means to regard as nothing, to think about something as nothing, as unimportant, to declare it invalid. So if you're ignoring God, you're declaring what he says invalid. You don't respect it. You think it's nothing. You are rejecting him and refusing him. And, and that's not what God wants. That's the, the whole purpose for Christ coming into the world so that we can have a relationship with God. See, those who live in the passion of lust like the Gentile, they do it like Gentiles who do not know God. God wants to know us. And that's why he says these things to us. That's why he gives us these rules, particularly about our sexual lives. Because he wants to know us. He doesn't want us to disregard him. He wants to be in a relationship. Wants us to be in a relationship with him. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us. We all struggle with these sexual sins in one way or another. And God is graciously guiding and directing us and giving us his word. And he sent Christ to cleanse us and forgive us and renew us when we have fallen into these sexual sins that are so prevalent in our culture. Isn't that wonderful of him that he loves us so much that he would do this for us and give us his word? So I want you to think about that. And maybe that's not your particular sin this morning, but it's true of every sin. God has given us his word. He's guiding and directing us because he wants to save us from law-breaking, from sin, from destruction in our lives, from chaos in our lives. And he wants to know us. And when we are holy as he is holy, we, we operate in a closer relationship with him. May the Lord grant us grace to grow in holiness this year. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks and, and praise for your word and for the, for the graciousness of it. As we see your heart coming through, uh, your heart of love for us, that you would warn us and, and give us these directions. Lord, give us, give us a heart to serve you, uh, faith to believe you, uh, a repentant spirit, Lord, that recognizes that, that we're powerless. We, we, we're so bombarded in our culture especially with sexual sins that it's easy for us to fall into these these errors these faults these these this rebellion against you so lord pray that you would uh, grant us repentance and and a and a true desire to to be your people and to know you and lord we pray that you would remove these sin barriers in our lives that that hinder our relationship with you
And we thank you now as we come to the Lord's table. We pray, Lord, that indeed we would commune with you and come to a deeper knowledge of you in these moments. In Jesus' name we prayed. We pray, amen.